The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Shah Gilani. Uh, he is the editor of the uh, trading research service, Capital Wave Forecast. He also has a blog called Wall Street Insights and Indictments, and he contributes to the Money Morning and Money Map Report uh, newsletters as well. Welcome to the show, Shah. Thank you, Jordan. It's a pleasure to be with you. Let's just start with your background a little bit and uh, how you started in the investment world uh, to get to where you are today. I studied economics at uh, UCLA and uh, from there went to Chicago and uh, was a clerk, started out as a clerk on the Chicago Board of Options Exchange and uh, within a very brief period of time um, learned the ropes there and uh, ran a small hedge fund that uh, multiplied its capital quite considerably and so my original uh, entry to the business was through the derivative side of it uh, of course, trading of uh, options, and then when the S&P futures came online, I was trading those, and uh, the OEX, which was the original S&P 100, uh, which was uh, the precursor uh, of what is now the S&P 100 as we know, but the OEX was where actually the VIX uh, volatility indicator really came out of. I was part of uh, the creation of the VIX in the early days, and um, I've gone on to run a couple of trading desks on Wall Street to my own hedge funds, and uh, I'm now enjoying writing uh, for uh, Money Map Press. So uh, you you have this uh, a daily news uh, blog, the Wall Street Insights and Indictments uh, newsletter. Just give us a kind of overall view of your view towards Wall Street at this point. Uh, is it a, a place that the average person can make a decent amount of money, or is it a rig game? Well, it, it's both. It's it's a place where people can still make money, but you have to understand the rules of the game, and sometimes it doesn't seem like there are rules, but there are. Uh, they're mostly rules crafted by the insiders, and I think if, if uh, your average investor understands how the game is played, they can perhaps play along a little bit more diligently, but it's not for the faint of heart. The, the game itself has become far more professional in how it has to be approached and how it has to be viewed, and uh, it's certainly still a place where money can be made by average investors. There's no question about that, but they do have to have a certain amount of uh, due diligence done, <clears throat> and they have to have confidence in, in what they're doing, which is problematic given the way Wall Street slices and dices things and makes it hard on individuals to understand really what's going on behind the curtains. What would be one of the two of the rules uh, that you say people should understand that still apply in today's market? Well, probably the principal rule used to be, uh, you know, to invest long term, and that is buy and hold is uh, has been the mantra of Wall Street for many years, and and uh, it, there was a time certainly when that was the way to invest, but it has morphed into basically buy and hold for long term investors who get picked off by short term traders. Wall Street is not a buy and hold place. Wall Street does not buy and hold. There are obviously managers. 
uh, Berkshire Hathaway's, Warren Buffett being the one most well-noted, uh, who buys and particularly decides to hold forever, as he says, which he actually does not do. Um, he does sell. But for the average investor, they've been taught buy and hold. But what Wall Street does, most of the desks on Wall Street, the bank desks, the investment banking desks, or the trading desks, the small shops, they're all trading. They're not buying and holding long-term, as they're advocating the public does. Uh, they actually use those long-term holds to trade against. So the uh, public has to understand that buy and hold, I believe in my in my very lengthy uh, career and, and watching this unfold, is dead. And it's regrettable because... Uh, uh, primarily because Wall Street has created a trading atmosphere, and, and that's a problem. So how should the average investor uh, adapt to that? I mean, do they have to become short-term traders to be, become successful? No, they don't have to become short-term traders. It's okay to have the mentality that you, if you like a company and you want to own its stock, then that's a good place to start. I think the understanding has to be a little bit further down the line that um, I'm not going to do this forever, put this away, and never look at it again. Uh, investors today have to be cognizant of what's going on globally because globally, uh, whether it's uh, competition, whether it's technological changes, whether it's uh, capital flight from one particular area to another for various reasons, uh, markets change um, and, and things ebb and flow. So the profitability of long term isn't always uh, stable and, and therefore sometimes it's good to take your money off the table. I advocate it's almost always good to take your money off the table. If you have a, a good long term gain and you're happy with that, don't get overly greedy. You can always reapply that capital back into the same stock, but uh, it's always good to ring the cash register. Buying hold these days is is problematic if you're doing well and all of a sudden the market crashes on you and, and you're back at square one. Yes, maybe it's a good time to buy and uh, to continue to hold that, but if, if you go through those cycles as we have for example, for the last 10 years, uh, if you look at the S&P, it's gone nowhere. So you could have bought and hold 10, 11, 12 years ago. You'd be pretty much where you were. However, if you had taken profits in some of your great positions and moved your capital around a little bit and gone into positions that weren't performing as well and tried to ride those up, you'd have done much better. That's what Wall Street does. They rotate. They move in and out of stocks. They take profits, cut their losses short, and that's what average investors should be looking to do. You talked about looking globally, so let's kind of start with a global view of the world. Uh, I mean, there would be a, a current view that uh, the world is growing, but at a slower pace. Europe is, is really declining in some ways. Uh, but as a result of that weakness, that you're seeing a tremendous surge of money, uh, monetary easing by the Federal Reserve here, by the European Central Bank. The Chinese are doing infrastructure programs, the Japanese. There's stimulation going on all around the world, and the old phrase is never fight Central banks never fight the Fed, that the markets should go much higher as a result of this, and we're in a bull market period. Is that the way you think about things? From the trading perspective, you have to go that route. Yes, I agree. Uh, the mantra is indeed don't fight the Fed. So if the Fed is continuing to ease here in the U.S., and as you recognize uh, correctly, globally, uh, global central banks are, are, are leading uh, towards easing increasingly so, uh, you, you don't want to fight that in the short term because – what that does is that added liquidity that central banks are providing goes fairly directly into banks and are and then funneled for the most part into short-term investments because that liquidity that is being supplied by central banks can be withdrawn at any time. Now, it's unlikely that it's going to be drawn, withdrawn soon, and the Fed has articulated a longer-term policy of keeping rates low, but everybody knows 
and investors know <clears throat> that, that that money can be mopped up. The loose money can be mopped up. So investors who are attached to that short-term liquidity want the liquidity in, in their own investment horizon to be able to get out. They're not going to invest long-term in real estate and long-term uh, on, on account of the fact that they, those things can be, that money can be withdrawn. They can be um, out of that picture very quickly. They keep tight. We're having trouble hearing him. Are we there? Uh, yeah, we, I just lost you briefly, Sean. So just re repeat your last uh, statement oh, there. You're saying, basically you're saying the money could be withdrawn. The money can be withdrawn by the central bank, and eventually it will be. And that's uh, part of the problem is how long can central banks keep pouring money into, these, uh, into the global economy uh, without it causing inflation? So at some point, uh, we're going to see the trigger, of, uh, whatever is going to be that trigger of inflation, uh, and there's going to be some fear and there's going to be mopping up. So the investors who take advantage of the liquidity that's been provided aren't going to invest long term. So the assets they are investing in are short term. So yes, assets such as stocks in particular are going up, have been going up. I think your investors and, and, your, and their audience has to understand this is not uh, you know, something we don't understand. This is actually Federal Reserve articulated policy. Chairman Bernanke has said he wants the stock market to go up in order for uh, the public to feel more confident that the market is strong and that their 401ks, their investment and retirement plans, pension plans are doing better and therefore they feel more comfortable going back out into the marketplace and consuming. And this is his strategy for, for um, growing the economy. It's based on this kind of liquidity, which is in, it's impossible for it to last forever. But it could last quite a while. I mean, is there anything wrong with that policy? Because some would say the bigger worry, and Bernanke's worry particularly, is deflation. He's kind of the ultimate student of the Depression and doesn't want to have a, a deflationary spiral on his hands as they've had in Japan. So the, the best solution is to flood the system with liquidity. Is there anything wrong with that, looking at that things that way? Well, I, I think there's plenty of liquidity in the system and as far as what the consumers require. The problem with the, actually what's going on with the, the drive to add liquidity is that the banks in this country and globally aren't as stable as they should be. Um, and because they, part of the reason is that the Federal Reserve and other central banks have created this uh, easy money policy and the banks interest rate uh, spread has been narrowing. Um, to the contrary, it's not been good for the banks in the long term. In the short term, yes, it's provided liquidity banks need to shore up their balance sheets, etc. It gives the banks a heck of a lot of money with which they go out and buy government bonds, basically supporting the Treasury in the United States and uh, you know, European sovereign debt. And this is, in a sense, creating greater confidence that the ability of, the gov of governments to, to um, pay for the goods and services they, they spend money on is available. But that money is coming from the liquidity the central banks are actually creating out of thin air. So it's a, it's a rather vicious cycle. And in the long run, it is going to cause problems because inevitably that money has to go somewhere. It, it, just, it stays in the system. It doesn't disappear. And at some point, we don't know when, prices will probably start rising and could be problematic. But in the short term, you're correct. There's, it, there's, in the immediate future, there doesn't seem to be any problem with it, ostensibly. But there actually is, because keeping interest rates low is a manipulative policy. It, it actually abrogates the, the efficiency of the free market. And this is sort of what happened in the subprime 
crisis. We, we had folks that normally wouldn't be able to afford um, mortgages were given very cheap, easy money through the credit that was made available to them because interest rates were kept low. And if interest rates were allowed to move where they were supposed to, those folks that were you know, a greater risk would have to pay higher interest rates on their mortgages. Well, they didn't have to. So they were able to take those mortgages. This manifested itself throughout the system, not only in the U.S., but globally. And that's part of the problem with manipulating rates and keeping them low um, longer than they should be. The free market needs to reassert itself. Uh, however, uh, the Fed isn't allowing that, nor are other central banks. Okay, very good. We're going to go to a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman with the Money Answer Show. My guest today is Shah Gilani. Uh, he's the editor of the Capital Wave Forecast Newsletter. He also writes a blog called Wall Street Insights and Indictments. Uh, you can find out more about his writings at moneymorning.com, where there's a free newsletter that he contributes to as well. We'll be back after this. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and is the co-founder of BR Public Relations, who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to The Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CIO Talk Radio, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experiences with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive. This means better care for customers and improves the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest today is Shah Gilani. Uh, he's the editor of the Capital Wave Forecast. He also does a daily blog called Wall Street Insights and Indictments. 
and he contributes to the Agora Publishing the newsletter Money Morning, uh, which you can get at moneymorning.com. Welcome back to the show, Shah. Thank you. So you did say uh, that this is a, a bad thing. The central banks are flooding the system uh, with too much liquidity. It's going to cause inflation in the future. Let me make you the world central bank president right now. You, you control ECB, the Fed, Japanese, the Chinese, all the central banks in the world. How would you have done it differently than the way they're doing it today? Well, unfortunately, I don't think there were too many. I'm sorry, Jordan. I don't think there were too many options at the time of the crisis. Okay. Uh, I think at the time of the crisis, the the, the responses uh, and the options were limited. So, uh, central banks, in particular the Federal Reserve, did what they had to do. Um, subsequently, I think they've made a mistake in continuing that policy to aid and abet the large banks. Uh, what should have been done subsequently after the, the uh, panic had subsided, after the crisis was over, was to say, quote-unquote, never again. And the way to create a never again a future is to break up all the big banks. They're just too big. They're too large to manage. Uh, the risks they take on are too big to be digested by those banks, uh, by the syndicate of banks that, that might come to their aid, meaning the central banks. And so the response, the policy response is always going to be government intervention tax, taxpayers uh, lining up to, to bail out the bankers. And um, that's going to continue. There's no reason for that not to continue because the, the quote-unquote moral hazard of, of taking the risks that can cause you to fail has been wiped out by central banks saying, that's okay, do what you have to do, as big as you are, if you get in trouble, we'll come bail you out with taxpayer money. So if I was running the world's central banks, I would say, good, we've, we've passed the crisis, now we need to make sure it never happens again, and the way to do that is to break up the big banks, and there are certainly ways that smaller banks um, that don't pose a systemic risk to everybody can syndicate large loans. Um, where necessary. But most of the banks at, the, say, even the regional level that we have in the United States are adequate in size to form the commercial banking functions that keep the economies moving at, at the speed of you know, modern-day um, light, if you will. It, it, they're perfectly capable of handling. There's no need to have these mega-universal banks. They're just uh, they're, they're a consistent problem at the edge of the cliff waiting to push us all over. I mean, some would say that the Dodd-Frank regulation was the response to the financial crisis, and that forced banks to spin off their proprietary trading units so they don't have uh, risk from that. They created all these boards for systematic risk, um, and there's all 2,000 pages of regulation to make sure it never happened again. What was wrong with that idea? Well, what what's wrong with Dodd-Frank is still what's wrong with Dodd-Frank is it's unwritten. It, it's not completed. Uh, there are so many aspects to Dodd-Frank that have not been completed. We don't really know in the final analysis what Dodd-Frank is going to be, if it is going to be what it is even partly supposed to be. So it was too large, too unwieldy uh, in the first place. What, what could have been done more effectively was to, it, yes, it sounds like it's stepping backwards, but what's wrong with what worked? And by that, I mean we should revisit what we did with Glass-Steagall. Uh, when, when we had the separation of commercial banks and investment banks, things worked pretty well. 
and we had a few economic problems for sure, but we didn't really have any banking crises. The ones we did have, namely the, the SNL crisis, um, there were problems that we can identify as to what caused that. And it wasn't that those banks involved in the SNL crisis were so big. It was just there were interest rate policies that were allowed and the regulatory changes that occurred that caused those problems at the SNLs. But it wasn't because they were too big. Um, but now with Dodd-Frank, everybody is looking at Dodd-Frank and trying to figure out what will be written, what and how do you interpret what has been written? The Volcker Rule is a perfect example. Uh, we don't even have a final um, say on what the Volcker Rule is going to be. There are definitions, um, part and parcel to the Volcker Rule, that have not been clarified. So we don't have a Volcker Rule yet. We are moving in that direction, um, but an election of an, a new administration uh, may basically be the end of Dodd-Frank as we have known it, and it may never be written to its fullest extent. But Dodd-Frank wasn't the answer. The answer, generally speaking, is, is are, are more concise rules and regulations and, and better enforcement of them. We don't need to have thousands of pages of regulation where there are thousands of loopholes created within those rules, which is why they're written in, in such a lengthy form, so folks can get around them. We need short, concise rules that make practical sense, and they need to be enforced. We recently had the uh, 25th anniversary of the crash of 87, uh, which was caused by program trading and the computers kind of going crazy and all that. Um, at, have we learned from what happened 25 years ago? And how does what happened then relate to the uh, crisis of 2008? And, and could something like that happen again? Uh, I, yes, something like that can happen. And I think it's on the verge of happening um, in our very near future. But to go back to the first part of your question, Jordan, have we learned anything from that? Actually, we haven't learned a thing. What happened in 1987 uh, was that program trading had, had taken root, and there were programs, that com computer-driven programs, that traders and trading desks were applying to the market to try and make profits. And there's nothing wrong with that, per se. One of the programs that came out uh, was known as Portfolio Insurance. It was created by Kidder Peabody, and it was essentially a, a tool that portfolio managers could use that said, look, whatever you're doing, whatever portfolio you have, we have an insurance program that if the market goes down, what we will do is we will measure mathematically what your portfolio's exposure is, and based on that, we can sell a certain amount of S&P 500 futures to offset the losses on your long stock positions. So folks bought into that. It was sold quite widely. Other firms got involved in selling portfolio insurance. And when uh, that Black Monday came and the market started to sell off for multiple reasons, these portfolio insurance programs went into effect. As stocks went down, futures were sold to offset those losses. Well, as futures were sold, eventually more people looked at their, the market going down and more futures were sold. The other side of that is the folks that actually bought the futures, because when the futures were being sold, these quote-unquote insurance policies were being sold that day, other people were buying the futures. Now, if I'm a trader and the market is falling on me and I'm going to be buying a large quantity of these futures while everybody else is selling them, the only reason I'm going to do that is because I probably have a program on the other side of why I'm buying them, which is telling me how many stocks to sell against them. So I might be buying those futures that the insurance folks are selling to protect their clients, but at the same time, to protect myself, I'm selling large quantities of stocks. 
this went on and on and on and became self-fulfilling, and the market kept going down and down and down. So it's part of the problem is the, the, the schemes, if you will, that Wall Street comes up with. Portfolio insurance fell by the wayside after that, but it was obviously replaced because it sold a lot, and a lot of folks made a lot of money selling those programs. The latest thing that came about after that was credit default swaps. Similar type of program in, in terms of we're going to protect your portfolio by providing you these credit default swaps. So if this goes wrong or that goes wrong, you have insurance in, in the form of these CDS positions. And at part of the subprime buildup was people were taking on this subprime risk in large quantities, buying these pooled investments because on the backside they were able to, to buy credit default swap insurance, if you will. And, and, and again, everybody thought they were safe until the risk hits the fan and everybody realizes, no, we all are in the same boat and it's, all, and it's going down, we're all going down together. So we haven't learned a lot. We cannot, you cannot mitigate, you can mitigate risk to some degree, but you cannot transfer it ultimately because it, the bucks has to stop somewhere. And what happens is we end up sometimes just spreading that risk around and we don't realize it comes back upon us in different ways. So what is the version today of CDSs and portfolio insurance that's being built up that could blow up uh, in the future? Well, systemically, the markets have been fragmented um, since the 90s, actually. And again, this is part of competition. There's not a lot that could have been done about it. It perhaps could have been orchestrated a little bit more um, cohesively, but uh, the fragmentation of the markets resulted early in the 90s when electronic exchanges, uh, ECNs, electronic communications networks, vied with the exchanges, principally the New York, the Amex, and NASDAQ, to say, we have a right to trade stocks over at our house. Why should we have to come to your house to trade stocks? Why can't we do it here? Why can't we do it in cyberspace? Why can't we compete and lower the prices and give people options? And so that came about. The problem with that is you have now very often the same stock might be traded three, four, five different exchanges at different venues. So in the old days where one particular stock, say IBM, was traded principally and, and solely at the New York Stock Exchange, IBM now can be traded any number of different places. So not all the orders go to the same place. So you have fragmentation there that creates a thin, thinner markets, if you will. And that, that's one problem. Decimalization was another, um, going from the system of eighths, where stocks were sold in eighths, down to pennies, created other problems in, in terms of liquidity because folks didn't want to step up and put large orders down anymore um, for, for multiple reasons that really has to do with how the specialists and market makers operate and, and their risk war parameters. And so into that, you have you know, this continued advent of computer trading to take advantage of, well, if one stock is traded in five different places, maybe we can create a computer program that can recognize the differentials in prices and do certain things about that. That's not a bad idea. That's essentially a type of arbitrage. But that then morphed into well, now if we can actually maybe manipulate other people into thinking that we're going to buy by what's called pinging, by sending out orders, which is what high-frequency trading desks do, send out fake orders to buy or sell stocks to get these different exchanges, other folks on those different exchanges, to move their bids and offers, which is a form of manipulation unquestionably. Um, they then act on some of the movement of those orders to take advantage of 
price discrepancies and also just the fact that some traders have moved their bids and offers. So high frequency traders. Is, is that illegal, Sean? Is that illegal to do pinging like that, or is it just you just call no. it manipulation? But is it illegal? It's, it is not illegal. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it, it has been aided and bedded by uh, the exchanges, principally the New York Stock Exchange, um, under the, the rubric and, and sub- with support of the Securities and Exchange Commission. It is not illegal. Um, it, it, I think it's, 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 it's a crime that certain folks are allowed access, faster access, to the exchange's service because they have the money to pay for it. Whereas your everyday investors don't have that advantage. They're not able to pay the kind of sums that these high-frequency trading desks are paying to co-locate their servers right next to the exchange's servers in order to get faster access to the market information. It, it, it should be illegal. How it got that far is just a testament to how far things have gotten for the sake of greed and money. And um, obviously, people have paid for the support of the exchanges and the SEC. Legislators have aided and abetted in allowing this to happen. So, yes, there are disadvantages um, that the small investors cannot possibly manage to make up that um, insiders, if you will, to use that broad term, have. And high-frequency trading creates an unequal playing field. The fact that computers aren't perfect and the fact that systems go haywire, we've seen it before, we saw it. Uh, in the flash crash in May of 2010, we saw it recently with Knight Capital losing about $400 million uh, in a matter of a very short period of time and essentially requiring a bailout. Uh, these are computer systems and programs that went haywire. Uh, and the more computers are being utilized to game the market, uh, the more likely it's going to be that at some point there's going to be a ghost in the machine and, and we're going to come crashing down. And um, the problem there is what will happen to the confidence that remains that investors have in the capital markets. It's, it's as, as thin as it is now, it may evaporate altogether. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman with the Money Answer Show. Uh, my guest today is Shah Gilani. Uh, he's the editor of Capital Wave Forecasts. Uh, he has a, a blog, Wall Street Insights and Indictments. Uh, he also contributes to the Money Morning uh, newsletter, and you can find out about that at moneymorning.com. We'll be back after this. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Join Patricia Raskin, the host of Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, Monday, 11 Pacific. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call to Positive Living, Mondays at 11 Pacific Time, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. Today's business marketplace is becoming increasingly global thanks to technologies that didn't even exist a few short years ago. Your business might be a startup or you might be one of the global 500. Either way, you're probably looking at customers and competitors in faraway regions. Listen for Global Reach with host Tay Revez as she brings together experts, ideas, and listeners to help you anywhere in the world. 
Global Reach is broadcast every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman. My guest today is Shah Gilani. He's the editor of the Capital Wave Forecast, uh, Wall Street Insights and Indictments, and he contributes to the daily newsletter, moneymorning.com. Welcome back to the show, Shah. Great to be here. We have uh, the fiscal cliff coming, which everybody's worried about, which is, uh, as of right now, January 1st, a dramatic increase in tax rates, uh, big reductions in both domestic and defense spending happening all at once, while the national debt ceiling debate has to go on. What is your expectation of what's going to happen with the fiscal cliff, and how do you invest, knowing that that's a possibility out there? The fiscal cliff is is a real problem. I don't think it can be understated. Um, or overstated enough, it, it, it's actually the, the potential for it to cause damage to the economy is, uh, is mercurially manifest, and it's upon us. And the, the fear I have is that uh, depending on who wins the presidential race here, we're going to have, I think, a problem. And again, I'm just speculating here, but because of the divisiveness in Congress, I wouldn't put a past the Republican Party if Barack Obama gets reelected to basically jawbone their way into the philosophical argument, which isn't incorrect, by the way, and I agree with uh, fundamentally that um, by continuing to spend and, um, and and in the wrong areas and but not providing funds for that capital spending we're going to have to we're going to end up in a hole so we need to not cut taxes at this juncture but cut them later and we need to stop spending maybe not now but later and i think the argument is going to get so muddled as it has been that the argument will be uh, actually unrelatable to the public because philosophically we're talking about two different types of approach to government and spending, and what I think is going to happen is we actually may see the fiscal cliff if, um, if Barack Obama is reelected, and um, I think we have a better chance of resolving that if there is a landslide victory on the Republican side, and the Republicans try and take control of this mess and clean it up. But because of the political infighting, and because we are so close on both sides here, um, I, I see continued battle for the hearts and souls of uh, voters going forward um, in the in the um, election coming up in two years. So for for congressional seats, so it, it's it's not going to be easily resolved. And uh, unless there's landslide victory, I think towards the Republicans, I think it's going to get even more muddled and it's going to make it more likely that we will actually fall 
cross and fall over the fiscal cliff. So if we, in fact, do fall over the fiscal cliff and rate, tax rates go up and spending gets cuts, how do you invest? Are there ways to profit uh, from that scenario if, in fact, it does happen? Well, the first thing investors should do is, is certainly make sure they have stops on their positions because as we go, the, the thing that the Wall Street and the markets hate the most is, uh, is, is an undecided future uh, where we really have no idea as to what tax policy will be, no idea what fiscal policy will be, et cetera. And, and that's the problem for markets. The markets get skittish. Investors tend to sit on the sidelines. And uh, if that starts to happen, we've had a nice rise in the market. We may be seeing a little bit of that already coming in because of a very short time from the election. Um, there's some profit-taking going on. As people say, well, maybe we'll go to the sidelines until we see what happens after this election. And that's probably a prudent thing for people to do right now is to make sure that the investments they have out there, there are, they have stops on their positions. There's some exit strategy to get out and go to the sidelines if, if the market begins to dip here. Um, keep your capital at the ready. It's always possible to re-enter. The market starts to rally again. You can always get back in. But the problem here is um, if we don't have a resolution, if we don't have compromise, we're going to, the markets are going to start to get very, very choppy, and uh, that's, that's a dangerous time for investors. So you're saying stocks would go down, but it would be good for bonds? What would benefit by a fiscal, going over the fiscal cliff? Well, yes, going over the fiscal cliff uh, would certainly be problematic for stocks. Um, the, number one, I think the stock market would fall rather precipitously if we did go over that cliff. And prior to going over it, if it looked like we were going, the market uh, anticipates those kinds of actions and would start something off long before we actually went over the cliff. And as far as bonds go, I think there would be selling of bonds, too. I don't know the bonds would be the best place to be. Uh, there would initially be a rush probably into treasuries as a safe haven, uh, but at some point uh, treasury yields would get probably so low that people would say at, at, at some point um, it, if we go over this fiscal cliff, then I don't we even want to own treasuries at these kinds of yields. So uh, investors are going to be in a difficult position, but bonds probably would, would um, gain initially, uh, but I wouldn't want to be a long term holder of treasuries at, at, at yields below one and a half percent, or I think they could go in, in, in the panic, they could go as low, as, I'm talking about the 10-year, as low as uh, 1.25 or even conceivably to one percent. Um, I wouldn't want to own a piece of paper that pays me one percent for 10 years. Um, I, there are other ways to make money. Yeah. Uh, so how about inflation hedges? Because, I mean, one solution is to flood the system with, a, with money, as the Federal Reserve is already doing. Uh, I mean, whenever there's a crisis, that's what they do. They'd probably do the same thing even more than $40 billion a month. They would pour even more money in to offset the, uh, the downward force from a fiscal cliff. So would, would inflationary commodities and things like that benefit by this? Well, it depends how the world reacted to, uh, the Ameri to America's fiscal cliff and, and America actually falling off that cliff. Um, I think there would be a sell-off of assets globally. I think commodities would be sold off. There's been a lot of commodities that have been stockpiled, especially by the Chinese, in anticipation of global growth. Um, some of those commodity prices have come off, uh, but there are still stockpiles out there in anticipation of future global growth. Uh, those, the holders of, of commodities, for example, at some point would say that's it. You know, the global growth is not is now unexpected for a longer 
horizon. So there's no point in holding these. And let's, as prices start falling, let's get out of this now. So I think we could see a precipitous drop in commodities initially, too. So uh, the U.S. going off the fiscal cliff is going to be dramatic for global investing, and it's going to be quite a negative. Um, so you're saying world, it's, a, it's a deflationary event, not an inflationary event. Is that right? No, I believe it will be a deflationary event. I'm not worried about inflation, Jordan, until we see concrete signs of inflation. And we may not see them for some time. Eventually, they will manifest themselves throughout the economy. But at this juncture, I do agree with, the, I think, the Fed's prevailing fear of deflation versus inflation. I agree with that. Um, my longer-term pers- uh, perspective is that eventually the, the money that's being added to the system will turn around and, and it will be a problem. At this juncture, it isn't. Uh, my problem with Federal Reserve articulated policy is it's not allowing the free market to clear out the problems that it otherwise would be able to do. Uh, the banks aren't being uh, – there, there's no moral hazard um, necessity over at the banks, so they're basically doing what they need to do to make money and not fixing themselves for a brighter future. So there are problems that the Fed is creating with with their and high liquidity um, policies, but deflation would certainly be a problem. So you're saying in the short term, the uh, bigger risk is deflation, particularly if we go over the fiscal cliff. Longer term, uh, the, the more likely scenario is inflation with all this money that's being printed uh, increases velocity and increases inflation. So do you, do, as an investor, deflationary plays now and then get ready to do inflationary plays later? Yes, and, and I think that's a good way for investors to look at this as actually an opportunity. The United States is not Europe. The United States, if it goes over the fiscal cliff, will all of a sudden wake itself up and say, "This is how do we let this happen? Uh, oh, we know how it happened. There was no compromise in our Congress. We have become too politically divided. There are, there are too many issues here that stand on philosophies of government. We need to stand on compromise and get things done to move the economy and the United States forward. So we don't have the, 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 the different governments and, and different cultural uh, divides that, that Europe faces in terms of how they can get their fiscal house together collectively. Um, our situation is much more readily resolved. It can be resolved by compromise. And if we do go over the fiscal cliff, I, I would think that would be actually at some point um, – an excellent opportunity to go bottom fishing, um, and, and perhaps a generational, an extraordinary opportunity. Uh, the idea is, is be lucky enough to have your powder dry, so if we go over the cliff and hit bottom, you, you then start investing. Uh, that's always where the big money is made. The folks that have money understand how to get out of the way of a problem, and then when things look the worst, they're in there buying. And, and this might be a generational opportunity if we do go over the fiscal cliff for investors to get in at some point, because the world won't end. The United States isn't going to collapse. It's going to be a problem, but it's a resolvable problem for sure. And if we do go over that cliff, I think it's going to be a tremendous opportunity. So similar to the crash of 87 and the 2008 fiscal crisis, things went down sharply, and that turned out to be a fantastic buying opportunity. You're saying similar to that uh, with the fiscal cliff. Yes. Yeah, and again, that goes along with my philosophy of, of, of taking profit. So, yes, it doesn't mean that everything is going to be rosy in the future, but if we, if we hit some sort of bottom, um, as we did again in March 2009, before we've, we've seen this you know, long bounce back up here, um, when things look ugliest, that's the time that the really smart money goes in and, and buys. 
And, and you can only do that if you have dry powder, if you have capital available to step in. If you're a buy-and-hold investor and you're watching everything you own in value go down, 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 uh, you don't have any money to go in at the most opportune time because your money has been lost. You're just going to hang on hope it, you know, and pray that it goes back up. And, and that's where the difference between private investors small and public investors, if you will, and uh, Wall Street. You know, they're always looking to keep their capital dry, step out of the way, and step in at the most opportune times because they tend to want to create them for themselves. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest today is Shah Gilani. Uh, he's the editor of the Capital Wave Forecast. He also does a daily blog called Wall Street Insights and Indictments. And a free newsletter you can see his work is moneymorning.com. We'll be back after this. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. It's all Arizona, all over the world. If you're a local Arizona high school sports fan or if you're a transplanted fan somewhere else in the world, have we got a show for you. The first Internet sports radio talk show focusing solely on high school sports is The Coach's Corner with Scott Lovely. Tune in to talk about your favorite teams, players, or coaches. It's 100% Arizona high school sports coverage and a little bit more. Tune in Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 7 p.m. Eastern to the Voice America Sports Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest today is Shah Gilani, the editor of Capital Wave Forecast. He does a daily blog called Wall Street Insights and Indictments and contributes to a daily newsletter called Money Morning at moneymorning.com. Welcome back to the show, Shah. Thank you, Jordan. So we've said that uh, if we go over the fiscal cliff, this could be the buying opportunity of a, a generation. How do you go about figuring out where to buy? And you say, have your powder ready. But say you've got your powder ready. What sectors would be good to uh, buy into at that point? And 
I'm talking commodities, stocks, bonds, across the asset allocations, and, and precious metals. Where would be the best places to put money at that point? Well, before we get there, uh, let's talk a- briefly about where investors are probably best placed now. There, there are certainly speculative opportunities out there and, and uh, some great uh, stocks to play that, that have done exceptionally well, Apple being uh, you know, a standout, for example. But uh, they... The, uh, the bloom is a little bit off that rose, uh, if you will, um, and, and so is Apple a good buy right now? These are the times when investors have to ask themselves those kinds of questions. Is this a time to buy the dip? No, maybe not. Maybe not this time, because as the market is looking forward to the election, looking forward to the potential fiscal cliff, it's getting dicier to be in position. So the best place to be right now would be in high-dividend-yielding stocks, good, good companies that pay solid dividends, where investors can actually pick up some income and be in, and a lot of those, the big name stocks that provide good dividend yields are really good defensive stocks too, because folks want to go into them as they fall in price, their dividend yield respectively increases. And as long as they're able to continue to pay their dividends, they're going to be good plays. Those, so what uh, sectors would those be in? Well, I actually I like everything from uh, the, the large, the big pharma companies that, that pay solid, you know, four-plus percent dividends. I like some um, healthcare REITs that pay some of the healthcare, there's a couple of healthcare REITs out there uh, that pay upwards of 6%. Um, there are some energy uh, ETFs and some energy, large integrated energy companies that pay nice uh, yields. And those are the kind of plays I want to be in. Some of the industrials, um, diversified industrial companies that have uh, nice dividend yields, and some defensive plays like some cigarette um, uh, tobacco companies have, have very nice yields. And those are good places to be collecting income right now. And again, um, because we don't know what the future holds, those kinds of positions are have my subscribers in my newsletters have stops in place because we're making great money on those positions. We're collecting income off the dividends. But by the same token, uh, we want to be prepared uh, to take our money off the table if things go wrong because, generally speaking, when the tide goes out, all boats go to, out with it. So we, we don't want to get caught um, on the beach, if you will. So uh, those, are, those are the positions and the types of defense positions I, um, I have my subscribers in now. And that's where I like putting my money in the safe play right now. But I think the future, yeah, there's going to be tremendous opportunity. I really like energy long term. Um, and as energy falls, I like it even more. I think we're looking at oil today is a good example is slipping. Uh, we were below $90 a barrel for uh, West, West Texas Intermediate. And uh, I think at some point the oil market will bottom out. Natural gas is coming off a little bit today. It's off about 5% uh, down the road. Natural gas is going to be a huge commodity play for America. I think it's going to be a direction we're going to go in terms of our energy needs. So I look, for, uh, I look at a, a bright future for natural gas. Um, agricultural commodities. I, I, again, Jordan, if we go over this fiscal cliff and, and there's a huge sell-off because that's what investors do. They, they sell off and they try and um, you know, keep powder dry. Uh, commodities will come off. Oil will come off. All these areas we're talking about will come off considerably. Those will be exactly the types of areas I'll be looking to get into if indeed we have this fiscal cliff fall off and markets sell off. There will be tremendous long-term opportunities because uh, the, the planet isn't imploding. The food is going to be required. Energy is going to be required. We're going to get back. Global growth is going to reassert itself, and there's going to be need, uh, needs globally for, for everything. And 
this is just going to be a better opportunity. And again, as I, I made the case earlier, down the road, when inflation rears its ugly head, those investors who have bought into the commodities sectors and some of these sectors that are going to do well in, in an inflationary environment are going to find themselves way ahead of the curve as prices rise uh, at that time. And, and they could rise very, very quickly. And those folks who get in early are going to be very, very well off. How about gold and silver and other precious metals? Uh, would those would fall as well if we fall off the fiscal cliff, but then come back? Or, or, or is it too early to get into gold and silver? I mean, they've had a big move. What, what is your they've view on those? Move. I, I, I think it's always uh, it's, it's prudent to hold some uh, to hold a position in gold and silver. Uh, I tend to like uh, an equal weighting between gold and silver in a portfolio, but I'm not an advocate of having any more than maybe at the most ten percent of uh, your capital allocation into a gold and silver. Uh, play, but um, it, it's gold and silver, I think, uh, like any other investments or exchange traded or, or investment opportunity, um, will probably sell off if we have dramatic market decrease. Um, and that's partly mechanical on, a, on account of the fact that investors who are in gold and silver or in other assets um, may get margin calls, and they need to sell what they have profits in. And if gold and silver have risen nicely, they'd be selling those to take some profits in order to meet margin calls elsewhere. So we get into those kind of situations. Basically, that's why when markets go down, everything goes down. The, the, the correlation is unprecedented, which we saw during the financial crisis in 2008. It, when markets go down, everything goes down. There are no safe havens. And, um, there's no place to hide, you're saying. So if, no if you think so things gold and silver will probably get hit initially. Yeah, so if things are going down, would you play things on the short side, uh, maybe with some inverse ETFs or ways to profit from things falling? Yes, I, I'm always uh, an advocate of having, quote-unquote, uh, available insurance. And that may mean, in a number of senses, simple insurance uh, by having a stop loss order in place on your investments, so if certain things, if the bottom falls out, you get out of your position. You can reevaluate whether you want to get back in and when. Um, I also, because my history has been actually as an active trader, I am not afraid to take short positions. Generally speaking, when I'm holding a lot of uh, stocks in in my portfolio, I like to have insurance. I like to have a, a few, a handful of opportunities. And these days, ETFs are, are tremendous uh, tools for taking, if you will, positions that will protect you in a downside market, whether they're inverse ETFs that, uh, that you can purchase that go up in price if certain benchmark indexes like the Dow or the NASDAQ composite go down. Uh, so those kinds of plays, having a smattering of, of investments in those, again, with stops, because if the market continues to rise, uh, if the fiscal cliff is averted, if you know, every, anything can happen. Um, so, again, even on those defensive-type positions that I employ and that I have my subscribers employ, we have an out, because if we're wrong, one thing we always know is we just don't know what we should know at the time we wished we knew it. So be prepared. So even on those defensive-type positions, if we're wrong and the markets rally through the roof, we have an exit strategy in place to say, ah, we've lost maybe 10% in that little position, 7%, 15% maybe on a small position. Let's just get out. We were wrong there. But we have the insurance on. It's no different than paying insurance premium um, to protect your car, to protect your home, and uh, nothing, God willing, happens, and uh, you've just been able to sleep a little better at night. Having some protection is a good thing in these volatile markets. Very good. 
Okay, well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Shah Gilani. Uh, he is the editor of the Capital Wave Forecast Newsletter. He also does a daily blog called Wall Street Insights and Indictments and contributes to the Money Morning and Money Map uh, Report, uh, which you can find at moneymorning.com. Thanks so much for being a guest on the Money Answer Show, Shah. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, and we'll be back again with another edition of the Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.